0: Oh, I think I tore my ACL again. I should have finished rehab.
1: Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner.
2: Welcome back to Therapist in Motion podcast. We are on location today. This is Dan hosting. I am hosting solo, and I have two fantastic clinicians who will be joining us on the podcast today. First is Mr. Peter Gorman. Hi, Dan. And then Miss Kimberly Wolf-King. Hey, Daniel. We are very excited to have them on. Today's discussion is going to kind of go a lot of different directions, but the root of it is another listener-submitted question. The second one ever, which is exciting. So today we're gonna talk about ACL return to sport and validating that through insurance companies, especially when there is a visit limit or they are saying that return to sport is not covered under this patient's insurance plan. So first and foremost, Pete, you had a great thought of, of where this process starts when you see on your schedule that there's an individual coming in who is post-op ACL and how you utilize the team approach to ensure from the get-go you know how this is going to go.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to recognize, you know, not only us as therapists, but kind of train our, our front desk if that's who's helping us schedule these patients or um, check their benefits, uh, to have a, a plan in place when that person comes in knowing that it's a, a six to nine month process or whatever the process is in your head, knowing that we have a plan in place from the get-go if that person's limited to 20 visits,
2: to 30 visits, because we know that it's, it's gonna go well beyond that in a lot of cases. And I think another thing to, to think about related to the front office and the communication is there are plans in, in each of our states that we know historically may not 100% agree with return to sport or anything like that. And so I think that's another thing to just kind of have a running record of at your desk or amongst your team of, okay, this insurance company is usually a little bit more finicky. This insurance company isn't. This insurance company is based off of medical necessity. And and Kim, you brought up a point about medical necessity that you think about on your initial evaluations of how you're shaping that very first... and. visit, and the documentation associated with it.
1: Exactly. So when doing a plan of care, if it's an ACL patient, I'll automatically put um, for the duration anywhere from 9 to 12 months with reevals evals as medical necessity shows or monthly, depending on what the insurance plan is. That allows us, if we run into the issue of having medical necessity, we already have it signed off in our plan of care from the initial evaluation. One of the other points I want to point that Pete said in regards to the front desk checking is are they on a plan year or a calendar year? Because a lot of patients run into that issue where they might have done therapy in August and now it's the next year, but it's still within their plan year. And then they've already used 14 of their 20 visits and had no idea because it's a different calendar year. So that's a big uh, monitoring of the front desk that I would also keep in check.
2: That's a great thing to think about and something that's probably often forgotten because so many plans historically are calendar year, but based on who their employer is and how they get their benefits, it might be plan year. So that's, that's a great point to think about that could significantly impact your care. And it's not even related to a potential denial because they don't cover return to sport, but you have... Limited visits because it's a calendar, it's a plan year, not a calendar year. So that, that's a great thing to think about as well. Okay, so let's talk about some phrases, some clinical language that you utilize on your documentation that, that we've learned over the years as a way to potentially help our patient navigate a situation where. We know their insurance doesn't cover return to sport. So, Pete, what are some things that you go to in your clinical documentation and language you use to try and help support that from the get-go?
0: Yeah, so I think the language that I was talking about or that I want to talk about is, is in my goal setting. Um, where I tend to write goals, I, I try to steer away from return to sport. I think I use it as a tertiary goal or something along those lines. But the way that I word it sometimes is return to age-appropriate activities. That covers, you know, we're talking amateur athletes here. That covers a lot of high school athletes because they have uh, physical education, they have PE class. A lot of their sports are tied into PE class now, at least in, in this area. So that, that allows us the ability to say we need to get them back to something that affects their education. I think the other one that I use... Quite a bit when we're talking amateur athletes is when you get to the collegiate level, I try to make sure that we're talking about return to a scholarship level sport because this athlete is benefiting from having their scholarship. And so, you know, this isn't just about getting back and wanting to play a sport. This is part of their ability to get an education potentially. So that's where I start is in the goal setting section.
1: Uh, I would also add to that, instead of saying return to whatever the sport is, being able to return to running, cutting, or jumping. I would label the specific things that that sport needs because when in doubt, you can relate it to their functional mobility. And you could say that they are unable to reach these levels and that's going to affect their recreational wellness and their overall health. So I will tie it back to more of that versus naming the particular sport or team that they're on and make it more movement specific as to why that's functional for the athlete.
2: Yeah, I think those are great suggestions. To be completely honest with you, can't tell you if any of those actually work (laughs) or if they don't, but it's a different approach to our clinical documentation and writing goals than I think historically we would think of or potentially what our didactic education would teach us. Our didactic education would teach us that they have to have normal range of motion, equal strength, and ability to return to previous level of function. And if we've done a thorough job in our subjective of of articulating what their prior level of function is, that should help us. But I think those components you brought up in your goals is is a good way of phrasing it that, in all honesty, should be accepted by insurance because those are things as you said to Kim about health and wellness that really people should be able to do without reservation post-op ACL?
0: I think, I think the way that Kim worded it too is really well uh, because when you think of running, jumping, cutting, and you think of ACL re-injury, so if you're starting to go down the road of, okay, insurance might deny me later on, and I'm going to have a discussion with insurance, I'm starting to think, okay, how do I support what's medically necessary? And, you know, if this person is at risk for re-injury because they go back to running, jumping, or cutting because we didn't finish out an uh, appropriate rehab, um, I think, you know, like you said, not using back to sport, but saying running, jumping, cutting, and then talking about what risks are uh, associated with those movements for re-injury of, of an ACL in the middle of that rehab, especially, or towards the end, is a, is a good way to be able to justify it to an insurance company. At least, a different, like you said, a different way to support your what you're, what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say to the insurance company.
2: Yeah, and historically, as we all have, we've had those peer-to-peer reviews, and sometimes they go really well, and other times they don't want to hear a word that we have to say because they've already made up their mind or they're following their algorithm or whatever that may be. But as, as we think about trying to advocate on behalf of our patient, have an impact on the health spectrum, keep physical therapists pla- placed at the proverbial table, we have to be prepared to have those conversations and advocate on behalf of the expertise that we have and the needs that the patient has for our continued expertise. You know, we've seen insurances go to Medical necessity, well, there's only really one provider who can determine medical necessity. It's a physical therapist. We're the ones that are seeing the patient every single day. And if we're communicating appropriately with that patient's surgeon and any other healthcare provider on their team... We all really should be on the same page that this patient still needs continued care and therefore it is medically necessary because going back to Kim's first point is you've communicated that in your initial evaluation that this is what I expect their entire duration of care to be, not just six week increments, but you're articulating your clinical thought process on day one saying, I anticipate this person needing care for six, nine, 12 months.
1: I wanna go off of what you just said about the importance of communicating with the doctor because it's so common that a lot of physical therapists are not talking to the surgeon of their ACL patients. The better relationship that you have with them, especially if there's an insurance limitation, a lot of times insurances will approve more things if the doctor requests it compared to if the physical therapist requests it. So if you have a good relationship with the physician that is doing this, if you can say, hey, this patient cannot do A, B, and C, they're behind, they should be here within the surgical guidelines and they're not, that physician's going to be more likely to back you up and also send more patients to you in regards of what your expertise is when rehabbing them.
2: All right. So <clears throat> we've done a good job, I think, of, of, of giving our listeners some options to think about as they're going through an initial evaluation and, and how they're writing goals, how they're understanding from the very get-go what the patient's benefits are are the number of visits, et cetera. Now let's transition to how we're managing those patients on a frequency and duration standpoint through the first 12-ish weeks, maybe even the first 16 weeks, and things that you look for when you know that a patient has some sort, initially, of insurance-controlled visits to help navigate that first 12 to 16 weeks of your frequency and duration with that individual.
1: One of the things I always start off with with an ACL patient is letting them know those first really 6 to 12 weeks, it's kind of boring in therapy. There's not much that they're allowed to do based on the surgical guidelines. It gets a little redundant. You're trying to get the quad backfiring. And they're buying to know that it's not going to be like this forever and that there's going to be more importance in getting back to a much higher skilled level. So the first thing I like to assess is what is going to be their level of independence? Is this a patient that I'm going to need to be on constantly about doing their HEP Or is it somebody that has the drive, that has the desire to get back to that high level that's going to hold themselves accountable? If I have someone that's going to be able to do that, I'll probably lower their frequency to save their visits for when we're trying to do harder, more sports-specific exercises, rehab, manual therapy, and minimizing them at the beginning as long as if they have access to their athletic trainer or sport coach or being able to email or text and check in with me if they have any questions that arise during that early
2: phase. Peter?
0: Yeah, no, I think Kim said it pretty well there. I think the only thing for me would just be, obviously, you got to evaluate the the person and understand, like you said, compliance and what their motivation is, what their drive, what their understanding is of what you're trying to get them to do. And then I think, obviously, the the, the obvious one is saying, do they have range of motion deficits? Do they have quad firing deficits? Because obviously those are important things from the get-go that if we don't tackle those right from the beginning, if we start conserving visits from the beginning and we don't get back that range of motion, then we're in trouble on the back end. So like you said, all of all of the things evaluating the person and then evaluating the injury itself to see what's most appropriate for that person. Because yeah, it's, it'd be nice if we had like a black and white, this is what you do for these people. But as we all know, it it varies person to person.
2: Yeah, I think you hit on some really important components and it comes back to what we talked about in show prep and what we all do on a regular basis. And that's adequate and effective communication with anybody that needs to be involved in this athletes, this patient's care surgeon, like you mentioned crucially important to be on the same page with the surgeons. You understand their expectations, their timelines, their, ability to understand when and where we are and how to navigate if that individual is a go-getter and they're trying to push the envelope or they're a little bit behind and they need a little kick in the rear end the other thing i think is crucially important is that you kind of mentioned what the athletic trainer or the strength coach or the coach in general and i think there's one that we also missed and that's the parents especially if it's You know, a college athlete and and younger, they may have parental involvement and or, uh, I hate to say it, but parental pressure to push the envelope or do more than we're asking them to do. And so I think this kind of translates back to our previous episode where we talked about validating value of PT and having different models set up in your clinic for people to access our expertise, It could be a gym membership that they pay a monthly basis, and they come in, and they're being monitored. It's still, quote-unquote, scheduled, but it's not formally on our schedule, so it doesn't count as a visit. But they know that they're coming Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 3.30 every day, and we may have a conversation with them, and then one of those turns into an official visit because of something they tell us subjectively or something that we see objectively during their program. I think that, that's something that oftentimes is not really thought about. And some places have those in place and others don't. But it's a great way to manage and to still stay connected with that patient on a regular basis. You can still drive it. Yeah, we don't get the value for a quote-unquote that visit. But the the return. the the return and the relationship development that we're doing there is crucially important. I know that's something, Pete, you were talking about, about ways... To stay engaged with that person throughout their rehab or their return to, to task or, or sport, that you don't get a direct return on your investment from a monetary standpoint, but from a from a relationship standpoint and potentially future value is is important.
0: Yeah, and I think the model that you mentioned about using a gym membership is something that Kim and I have used fairly frequently in here when we know somebody's getting to that tail end and it's, it's less medically necessary, I guess is the way I could put it here. So that's a model that we do utilize. I think the other thing that we've done is, and that we need to, to really be good at as physical therapists is giving a home exercise program with frequency duration that actually matches the athletes needs to return to the sport. As we all know, that changes frequently and so we can send someone out of here and say, hey, I want you to work on this for for two weeks and I'll see you again in two weeks, especially in those middle phases where we know it's a lot of repetitive building of, of just strength at that point. We can give those home exercise programs, but we have to be good at it. But we are going to touch base with those athletes fairly frequently. And I think that that's something that Kim does a really good job of is staying in touch with them, whether it's text message or, or email, and then staying in touch with Not only the physician, but the athletic trainer, the coach, the parent, whoever it is that wants to be involved. And yes, we are not going to see a direct monetary return on that. But, I mean, it comes down to taking care of the patient, taking care of the athlete. If we take care of this patient, if we take care of this athlete, and we utilize their support system around them to do that, their support system, you know, I think that they... they. See that, and they respect that. And like you said, future, future things coming through, future athletes, other people on their team, other people in their club, other people at their school are going to have needs in the future. And you know, if we show that we can do the right thing and take care of this athlete, we do get you know future monetary rewards. So I think that there's you know there's a there's a part where you, know, you, you could you could look at this and say well, gosh, I'm not going to get paid for that part of it, so I'm not going to do it. Or you could look at it and say, i got to take care of this athlete, and this is what I want to be, this is what I signed up to do, Uh, so we really just need to take care of him.
1: I want to add to that the importance of not just doing a home exercise program, but if they're going to be out for a week or two until you see them next, teaching them what manual interventions you want them to be able to do, whether it's scar mobilization or desensitization, whether it's different taping techniques that you can teach them or their athletic trainer to help aid in whatever function or pain mitigation that they have to get control of in order to progress to that next step. It's us not just looking at exercises, but looking at everything as a whole and what the tissue factor is and how it's healing.
2: I think that's a great component that sometimes is forgotten, especially in you know a, a four to ten week standpoint. When sometimes programs or uh, guidelines may kind of restrict us for reasonable purposes. Don't get me wrong. And I think that that also opens up the door for discussions with or with that surgeon of what is okay and what is not okay and, and where can we be aggressive and where do we need to be conservative but I, I think that that's an important component you brought up Kim about the additional manual therapy techniques whether it's they do it themselves or you teach somebody that is at you know with them on a regular basis to do that because I also don't want our profession giving away free services so if that patient is coming in for a gym membership they you know yeah there might be a time when i can take five minutes and quick tape them because it's easier for me to do it than somebody else but that's not something that i want to set the precedent of every single time that that's going to happen i also don't want them to become reliant on said taping technique or i have to have manual therapy before i go and do these exercises or their home exercise program or whatever that may be like just from a mental standpoint, which I don't think we want to go down that pathway today. But I think you, do, you bring up a good point about educating them on the entire aspect of management when they are not with us.
1: And I would say not getting into the whole soapbox of the mental aspect, but understanding different types of pain, whether surgical pain, whether it's re-injury pain or muscle soreness pain and making sure that athlete knows the difference and how to differentiate because if they're going to be on their own, you don't want them pushing into pain that they thought was something else.
2: Yep. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the situations when insurance does say return to sport is not covered. They're four and a half months into their rehab. What are some strategies or situations that you all have experienced to help that individual continue on their plan moving forward and or individuals that you pull in to assist with their care?
0: I think it's important that one, we've sold our value throughout that, that first four, four and a half months to patient parent, everybody involved there. Because at that point, obviously you're going to have to have some sort of discussion. And I think this goes back to the relationship you have with all those people, especially the patient and the parent. You're going to have to start talking about alternative options for therapy so some sort of cash pay model, uh, membership model, whatever it looks like in in your clinic, you're gonna have to start to have that discussion because I think the reality is at four and a half months they're still they're still in the danger zone uh, and that's well within you know our wheelhouse and our scope. I do think that most of these athletes that we're seeing that come through our clinic have, established strength and conditioning coaches have established relationships with athletic trainers at their schools, their coaches that we can utilize that we can leverage. I think it's also important that we also try to have as many, you know, relationships as we can with those people in our community because at some point we're going to have to utilize them for help. And I think the the comfort level with us giving them our feedback, but not overstepping into their territory, so to speak, is important to say, you know, how comfortable and and understand how comfortable that strength and conditioning coach is or that athletic trainer is with how comfortable are you taking this athlete through their rehab for, you know, a few weeks at a time before they check back in with me. And not only how comfortable, but how much time. I mean, I think the reality is you look at a high school and you think, gosh, we could just send them to the athletic trainer and, and they'll help out here. But the reality is, is the athletic trainer's... I mean some some of these schools it's they have a thousand athletes and maybe one and a half, two, three athletic trainers. So they're not going to be able to realistically, you know, do what, what needs to be done in that situation. So having all of that understanding and being able to have all those conversations with the with their care team is super important. But like I said, I think that it comes back to showing our value. And being comfortable with that conversation is saying, "Look, I'll get you to this point. I'm confident that I can get you to this point. You follow me, uh, and and I'll guide you through this process, knowing that it's going to to come straight from the pocket rather than uh, going through insurance."
1: I think Pete said it great with that. One of the things I would follow up with with the athletic trainer is there's a lot of gray and overlap of what athletic trainers can do and what physical therapists can do, and I would want to give my athlete really detailed instructions of the type of manual therapy I'd want interventions with and make sure that the trainer is comfortable executing those and give them a couple weeks' worth of their exercises and how I want the progressions and key things to look out for. And then I would recommend that the trainer send back the athlete for their next functional ACL test of series of different moves and sequencing that we can take them through to see if they're ready for that next phase.
2: Yeah, I think in my experience, some of the things you've hit on are are spot on. First, it comes with establishing that value and that connection with the patient. So all the things we've already talked about of of the communication between sessions, of the follow-ups, of the commitment to the entire process, knowing that all of those things are crucial, regardless of if insurance is going to cover it or not. I think that that's a moot point. I think that's part of our professional responsibility and what we really need to strive to do, not just with our post-op ACLs, but really all of our patients. And there's another completely different discussion about that, but there's definitely evidence supporting that when you have one additional touch point between sessions, the probability of a successful outcome goes up and the probability that they will access you with a direct access standpoint also goes up, assuming that your state allows direct access. But whether it's an athletic trainer, whether it's a strength and conditioning coach, whether it's a position-specific coach, understanding that they have a clinical eye as well, and they may come back and say, hey, I've noticed every time we try this, this, and this, they're really struggling. What do you think? And, and understanding that that's a collaborative approach, knowing that we all have Gray areas of what we can do that overlap everybody. However, I think that the thing that should drive all of it is, is is objective data and where is this athlete objectively? Have they truly earned the right to move to the next phase? And are we all in agreement that they are ready to move to the next phase? Especially if there's multiple individuals participating in this in this recovery post insurance.
1: And to go off of earning the right, I would want them to keep in mind that some athletes are going to progress really, really fast. And just because it's not within the clinical guidelines, if they're already hitting these milestones and they're already testing, have that discussion with your physician, allow them to move to the next um, progression in, in their plan of care, just because as long, again, the physician is on board with it, they're hitting everything early, why hold them back longer if they can progress. Same thing on the flip side, if they're not hitting these milestones, what conversations do we need to be having and where do we need to make the regressions?
2: All right, I think we have done a a really good job of providing facilitative thought processes for our listeners. So Pete, kind of in your words, give us the quick, dirty rundown of what you're taking from this conversation. I think that the overall theme for me
0: is communication, communication from the beginning, and whether that's interdisciplinary within our clinic, between clinicians, between the family, the athlete, is is huge. And I think the other part of it is I wish there was a roadmap. I wish there was a roadmap that I could check off the boxes and I could follow it perfectly to a T, but the reality is there isn't. And so... We have to be really good at analyzing the situation, analyzing the athlete, what their needs are, and and adapting and being adaptable to to change our plan of care, you know, on the drop of a hat based on what's going on with that athlete. So I think that that's kind of the big theme for me.
1: I totally agree. I'd rather have over communication than lack thereof, and ensuring that everyone is on the same page and that. All of us are practicing athlete-centered care. I think that's the main objective we'd want to drive home.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you to Peter and Kim for joining us today on Therapist in Motion podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at therapistsinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thank you, and have a wonderful day
1: thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.